Ladies and gentlemen, you have tuned in to Mindful Conversations with Matt and Rob. Hello. That was kind of weak. Hello. There we go. Like, use your Superman voice or something. Sound... Up, up, and away. I'm saving the world. I'm Dr. Rob Cook. <laughs> hey, we like to have fun on Mindful Conversations. We do. Humor is a good medicine for the soul. I agree. Couldn't agree with you more. And so we've been having a fun time um, in the pre-recording phase of today's episode 45. Um, we have Ashley True on the phone. Hi, Ashley. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Hi, guys. This is so cool. This is our first phone. I was thinking that, yes. I feel like we're expanding. <laughs> you know, from Richland to Portage, we're definitely reaching geographically. Why didn't you say that, like, you're from, like, Switzerland or, like, <laughs> you know, Uganda or something? That would have sounded so much better. Because I cannot tell a lie? <laughs> You do, <laughs> you do live up to your last name. Yes. <laughs> so your nah, last, you're funny. Your last name is True. Of, of course, it is. of course, you're one of the our colleague. You've been on the program before, and of course, you're on staff here at Response Care. You just couldn't physically be present for the torture that we've been dishing out, dishing out in the pre-recording, but. Um, yeah, you know, when you get a phone call at 9.15 in the morning saying, hey, what are you doing at 11 a.m.? <laughs> Why are you giving away our secrets? <laughs> we, we want you to be ready in season and, and out, out of, of season. season. Okay, it's always, Ashley, it's always a test. <laughs> yes, clearly. I am a glutton for punishment working with the two of you. Yeah. Well, it, the, the feeling is mutual. All right, so... To start off this episode, um, it's springtime here in Michigan. Yes. And I think it's for real now. I think we've like birthed out of like the crazy cycle of winter. In some places it might be real. Northern had quite a bit of snow recently. Yeah. Well, I mowed my grass this morning and it was like 1030. So it was, it was really nice to be able to be outdoors. Um, my dog loves being outdoors. I love cutting grass. I love just the, the the bugs and the birds and all that kind of stuff is happening. What do you guys like to do this time of year? Wow. Like springtime, so the, the new birth of spring. What is the typical thing that you like to do? I like to go backpacking or kayaking. Okay. Ash? Well, yesterday I got the privilege of going on a fourth grade field trip, um, but I won't complain because we were at the Kalamazoo Nature Center. So I am not a backpacker like the two of you, but I love, love exploring new places and being outdoors. So that makes three of us. We, we all like being outdoors. Definitely. Yeah. Very good. I'm looking forward. I haven't kayaked in like two years, which is crazy, but we kayaked the Kalamazoo River out of Marshall. Okay. Down to the Bridge Park that's, you know, in Battle Creek. Yeah. And it's about a two and a half hour float. Really super simple. Um, but yeah, the waters are high right now. It's a good, good flow rate, you know, like three, four miles an hour. Um, it's super easy because you don't have to work. Well, we need to do that. I haven't, I haven't kayaked the Kalamazoo River yet. Oh yeah, we got to do that. Yeah, we do. So one of my favorite stories was I was with a buddy. And we were, you have to drop off the boat 
You know, you have to yeah. you have to drop off a car where you end. Yeah, Bridge Park. We did that. We went up with the boats and the tow vehicle, and uh, dropped in the the boats at the boat launch, and we floated down. Had a great time. But on the way down, I realized that I had left the keys for the car where we would <laughs> land. I left them with the truck upstream. Oh boy! So back. In, Back in that day, I just called my daughter. I said, SOS, and she drove to the boat launch, got the keys, and then came down. And Nice. So, you know, today they're both gone, so I'd have to call you. I would come. I know. Well, Maya, your son would for sure come. <laughs> yeah. Like, <he> <laughs> like, seriously, he would be up in Grand Rapids. I'd make a phone call. Hey, you know. Yeah, I, he I, would. I need water. Yeah. I'll be right there. I'll get you some water. <laughs> Yeah, so kayaking is on like like my top list. Yep, yep. Backpacking, kayaking, yeah. I just like being outdoors. Yeah, being. I in, like bike riding. Bike riding, yeah. Bike oh, that's riding. good too. Yeah, I love bike riding. Very good. Okay, it's just good to talk about good things, right? When I agree. When you're coming out of the trauma of Michigan winter. Yes. It feels, <laughs> it, it feels good. But today we're talking about what, Dr. Rob? We're talking about uh, for our episode today. Um, we uh, Chronic, chronic conditions, uh, chronic illnesses it's sometimes referred to. Um, but as Matt and I were talking earlier, and Ash and I do this periodically, we're just, I'm just amazed at how many young people that we're dealing with um, personally or professionally that are are facing really really steep climbs life is throwing them a curveball and it's affecting them and the new norm they're not going back they're not going back the nature of the illness the nature of the condition their their life is permanently changing mm-hmm. yeah so the, the topic for our conversation today is the reality for those who may be listening or even us dealing with chronic conditions. Yeah. Physical. Physical. It can be physical, me- emotional. Mental, emotional, yeah. um, logistical. I mean, it could be anything that's chronic. You know, we just got done with the Resilient Conference. So we're talking even now still about the idea of resiliency. Yep. Dealing with something like chronic um, a chronic condition. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's an unforeseen situation that changes the trajectory of a person's life. And I think I, I'm hoping that through our conversation, we keep attention on those of us who are experiencing a, a chronic situation or condition and those who are affected by our chronic condition. Here, here's a list that I'm looking at, and this is not exclusive or exhaustive, but things like um, Alzheimer's disease, yeah, uh, arthritis, asthma, cancer, COPD, Crohn's, um, cystic fibrosis, uh, dementia, uh, yeah. diabetes is a, is a big one, epilepsy, heart disease, um, mood disorders like mental disorders, um, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. Yeah. Like there's... There's a, the list can go on and on. Yeah. Um, would you guys add anything to that list? I would. You know, um, a lot of what you mentioned are things that can be, tend to be acquired at some point in the life. But I think for part of this conversation, too, are even, you know, obviously 
this is going to be my lens, but, you know, things that people are born with. Um, or, you know, like I have cerebral palsy, other people are born with different things that from the get-go impact their life. Because I think that whether somebody's born with something or they acquire it later kind of changes how somebody might cope or address, you know, some of these things. And so I think even just things that people are born with or even think of like amputees, you know, post-military or, you know, accidents. Mm -hmm. I think the point is that it's a, it's a situation or a disorder that persists for an extended period of time. That's how they generally Mm -hmm. define it. It affects a person's ability to function in a normal way. And those things that you listed, Ashley, are things that do that. I, when you listed heart disease, that's the one that jumped out at me because mm-hmm. I deal with heart disease. Mm-hmm. You know, three years ago, a heart attack and then open heart surgery, and that left um, <laughs> that left me with some chronic pain in my chest and in my leg. Mm-hmm. So these conditions do affect our ability to function whatever normally means in a normal way. Mm-hmm. Ashley, would you feel comfortable just maybe giving us a little bit of a picture of being born with cerebral palsy? Um, sure. And the idea of what it was like, I mean, obviously being born with it, growing up with it, and then mm-hmm. as an adolescent and as an adult, how did you adjust and um, what's it been like for you? Yeah, I'm just taking some notes because you um, asked me a couple of questions and I want to be able to make sure I reference those. Um, So I think here's the thing about CP, as many um, people call it, is it's a very um, heterogeneous disability. It's actually one of the most common childhood physical disorders, and it often is accompanied with cognitive impairment as well. And so CP can vary on a spectrum of severity. I was fortunate enough that mine, um, I would say mine was probably initially diagnosed as moderate and then shifted into the mild realm. Those that know me um, know that I walk around with a, with a slight limp, um, but I get around pretty good. And so I think it's, it is worth noting that lots of people have different experiences with CP, but my story is one that my mom had what was known as complete placenta previa, which means the placenta I was on top of it, so we were reversed. So anytime my mom stood, she hemorrhaged. And so I believe she, I ended up being an emergency C-section at about 28, 29 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the prognosis was, I was two pounds, one ounce. And the prognosis that my parents were given was that I would likely be um, a vegetable is what my parents told me oh my goodness, that yeah. I'd likely, Oh, sorry. I didn't know you guys didn't know that. No. Um, yeah. So before my dad passed, he told me the full story. Cause I think I, you know, as a kid, I got edited version, but my dad was asked which one of us he wanted my mom or me. Cause they didn't think they could save both. Um, and my dad being the fierce, passionate man he was, had some choice words with that doctor, which I can't imagine being in that doctor's position either. Mm. Um, and fortunately, we both did survive, but I didn't meet really many of my physical mile marks as a kid. Um, I could barely walk by the time I was four, 
And then I was fortunate enough to get into U of M Ann Arbor. And then that's when surgery started. Um, and my two biggest surgeries were at four and six. And so I, I can actually remember the first time I quote jumped um, because they had to lengthen both of my heel cords. And I was probably going on seven. And so it's been an interesting journey because there's been progress and then there's been setbacks. And so I would quote graduate from a wheelchair and then need to go back in for periods of time, just depending where we are at with surgeries and physical therapy. So it's been a varied journey. Um, and I would say, you know, adult life has been a lot smoother as far as surgeries, you know, but then random things happen because I do lose my balance and I fall or as what happened in the fall, I, a plate slipped out of my hand because I had a muscle spasm and then a piece lodged in my wrist, you know, so just different things do still happen. But I think the physical was one piece of it. And then it was the emotional piece, especially in later on in childhood and teen years was how do you cope with this? How do you cope with, you know, the bullying, feeling different, um, being in some ways being judged, you know, I don't experience it that much anymore, but there's times where people assume because I am disabled that I'm cognitively impaired. Um, and so that's always a fun moment of trying to accurately read a room and then trying to graciously find your way around it to correct any sort of stigma or implicit bias that might come with it. So that kind of gives a very broad overview of everything. Oh, no, that's a fantastic view. And I can assure our listeners that um, you don't have any difficulty throwing things. <laughs> so um, and uh, so I know that you're cognitively intact and, and your arms are fully functional. And when you do throw things, they do hurt when they impale the victim that you've targeted. Well, maybe if said victim didn't like to pick on me as, you know, he True. takes on the role of big brother much of the time. True, I can true. assure you growing up with two sisters who were amazing softball athletes, my my throwing arm is quite fine. I, I, I can verify that. <laughs> no, I mean, you've described, you know, very well just your story i think the, the i mean yeah. one of the things i'd like to inject here is the idea of finding a narrative that you can tell your story i find that very important yes um yeah. because it's telling your story that it makes sense to you and those around you and yeah you've shared even today things that i did not know about you and that helps me understand the journey that you've been on and mm -hmm. um so, i mean obviously all joking aside, um, I really admire you and just who you are as a person. And, um, wait, this is recorded this time, right, Rob? <laughs> oh, she actually is. gave me a compliment <laughs> and it is recorded. There, <laughs> you walked into that one, Matt. I did. I did. Um, so there, that's a, that's a, a, a great story. And I've, I know there's more to unpack. Dr. Rob, you have shared, and I think our listeners have heard before, but if you haven't um, you had a heart attack back in uh, 2020. Yes. Yeah. Uh, during COVID. It was <laughs> just a delightful time to it have was. a health crisis. Yeah. Yeah. We, it required me to take a trip to the ER and um, they separated my wife and I. And then I didn't see her for a few days later. But yeah, with the heart attack and uh, they initially thought that it was going to be 
just require a couple of stents because at that time I was a runner and um, reasonably healthy, you know, my diet, etc. And that's not at all what happened. I, I ended up with one of the more severe situations with uh, open heart surgery and quadruple heart bypass. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, there's some nerve damage uh, that I now live with in my chest. And what I don't think a lot of people recognize is with um, heart bypass, wherever they take a vein from your leg and many bypass uh, patients have more pain in their leg than they do in their chest. It's just after almost three years, neither uh, my chest nor my leg, the pain has has completely gone away. And um, they said it probably won't. So now it's an issue for me of chronic pain. Learning to now live with something that didn't exist that... Could you maybe describe, was there, like, even as you described going into the procedure, in your mindset, this was going to be kind of an in-and-out procedure, like, you know, a heart cath with stents? Yeah, that's what they, that's what they initially, that's what they initially thought. When they started running more tests, they began to have to backtrack, and they did backtrack. So the medical community, um prior to the testing, just kind of, I guess, played the, the odds, right? You're a runner, you're, you watch your diet, you, you, you have a healthy, a relatively healthy lifestyle. And so that led them to a premature diagnosis, which was not accurate. So the, the diagnosis was, was, misleading the early diagnosis was misleading because you appeared to be healthy that's exactly right and the heart attack that i had um my father had and it killed him okay so they call it the widow maker and and so for all intents purposes as they kept running more and more tests the the prognosis and the diagnosis became darker it got worse yeah yeah um, so your stories are a little bit different, uh, Ashley being kind of born with a, a, um, a condition, you discovering the heart issue, um, and then others listening may have their own. But as we talk about the, the general topic, what do we, what, what makes sense? What's, what should be on the radar as we have this conversation about dealing with chronic conditions? That. And Ashley can weigh in, but from from my vantage point, I would look at the commonalities, uh, let's just say, between Ashley and I. When you listen to her story, there's uncertainty. Um, The medical community, I'm thankful that they're around, but they don't have all the answers. There's the psychological component or distress that these conditions facilitate. And then there are the, the physical there are the physical limitations. Um, and for me with the chronic pain, I cannot, and with the heart disease, I cannot do what I once did. Like, for instance, they don't want me running anymore. So, and then Ashley referenced um, her physical challenges. So those are just some of the commonalities that when I look at or work with people with chronic conditions, that those are themes you see time and time again. Don't you think, Ashley? Ashley? 
I do. And, you know, I like the way you just approach that, Rob. And one thing I kind of add to that list with the uncertainty and how do we cope is also grief. Um, when we, in my opinion, we live in a culture and I like what Brene Brown says, she calls it gold plating grits. And I think part of my own story, my own journey, because Matt, I think one of the things that would help us frame this conversation is how do you make sense of your own story? Because we live in a culture where we do gold plate grit and we also can hedge towards what I'll call toxic positivity. But through all of this, yes, we need to see some of the positive in it or you get lost in the storm. However, along the way, I think there's a huge important piece of grief. And even through my own journey, when I finally, which was a little late, got myself into therapy in my early 20s, um, one of the things that my therapist did for me back then was she just looked at me and she goes, we're going to sit in grief for a bit. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because part of what kept me going was always pushing forward and not taking the time, like Rob said, to think about either the things that we lost, like Rob can no longer run, and that was so important to him, you know, and then there's also not only what we once could do, there's also grieving what will never be. You know, like in my case, I was taught that whatever you put your mind to, you do it. And that served me, I would say 90% well. It kept me moving forward. It kept me pushing the bar higher. But then there's a little bit of a disservice in that and that we don't grieve you know, I didn't grieve that I didn't have a normal childhood. I didn't grieve that some things would never be normal. Even yesterday being at my, my daughter's field trip, um, there was a moment where I got stuck hiking because I thought we were staying to more of the, you know, easy trails. And when I'm hiking with friends, it's no big deal. But there was a moment where I almost did completely lose my balance. And then I finally sucked up my own pride and asked for some help. Um but that's all part of the grief process. And whether you're born with something or you accumulate it later, I think grief and how you frame your narrative is highly important in that story. I, th I, th I couldn't agree with you more. It's like you have to grieve those, those things that were either lost or never been. And then the, and I'm not trying to take it down this, the conversation down this road, but just as a, uh, a footnote that, it's not just those of us who have the condition that has to grieve. It's those who love us. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the, it's the caregivers and the, the people when I was early on after the surgery, those, those first two weeks for me were like, I, I don't care if I ever remember them or live them again, but mm -hmm. I was, I was completely dependent on other people for everything because mm -hmm. the pain was just so great and um and i'm not saying that my pain was more worse than any others but for me it was like oh it, it hurt to breathe and mm -hmm. and so and you could see it matt and ashley you could see it and you know the family is trying to make sense of all this and what are they gonna do and then the uncertainty is is like this is this is this member ever going to get better? Yeah, and um, and then in real time, to Ashley's point, the grieving, it, it's it's to me, it's not it's not an option 
what we're talking about facilitates, to Ashley's point, grief on some level. Yeah, and, you know, the categories that we could reference are varied. Um, I have a close friend dealing with a situation uh, regarding parenting. Mm -hmm. And the child has a diagnosis, and um, it's more complex than I'm going to describe just in the sharing time. But the idea of the parent having to endure the the disorder, let's say it's a disorder, and helping that child navigate over the long haul and being able to go from stage to stage as the child develops, but so does the disorder. Yeah. Like it doesn't go away. Mm-mm. And so Mm-mm. then you're left with the fatigue, the ongoing fatigue and looking for respite or looking for resources, the exhausting process of looking for a resource that can help you when it seems like everything that you attempt doesn't work. Yeah. And, and going on and on and on, it kind of leaves you feeling hopeless and that's where despair can creep in. And that's where that, that long-term fatigue starts to erode your ability to cope well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. You know, to Rob's point and how it impacts the family, you know, um, I love working with families who have a child with a disability. I obviously I love to work with the child itself. But even though the child with the disability is my main client, I'm always looking for what is the family system around that? Because I even think about how many times my sisters had to drive all the way to U of M sit there for hours because I believe my first two surgeries were quite intense and they would have had to been there for hours. And at the time they would have been like six and 10, 11, you know, and just how that impacted them of, you know, my parents, we didn't have a whole lot of family support. And now that I'm a parent and I look back at, Oh my gosh, what was that like for my parents to be managing three kids, let alone one who, for lack of a better word, had special needs and needed to go to OT and PT and some of these other things, you know, and just like with Rob's heart attack, the family taking the brunt, there was times where like, I know I wasn't a pleasant person. I was angry. I was resentful. You know, pain medications can can do some pretty hefty things, even on you emotionally, Um, you know, and so it's, it's not just about the individual, but it's also about their family system and those around them. Because there is a lot of fatigue in the parenting, especially for um, the chronic ongoing pieces that come with it. You're going to have to speak for yourself, Ash, because I, on the other hand, was a model patient. Never got snarky. Never lost hope. You can't even finish that with a straight face, Robert. I know it. I know it. Well played, yeah, Matt. We're, yeah, we're all laughing at you. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't be the first time. But to your point, the family, and then Matt, you know, the hope, it, it's like you have to reevaluate or reinvent hope with each new stage. It, I think of it as guarding my hope. You know, I'm now yeah. living with a new norm. I'm going through those processes. I'm grieving. I'm doing 
the psychological, emotional, and physical work of the challenge. And I have to take responsibility for guarding my hope. And it's not it's not just so simple that I'm I'm only responsible for it. But I don't know about you, Ash, but I found that, you know, my friends, my family, the people who who care or actually care about about me or others, they would step into that fray and they would help lift they would help lift this this load of hopelessness and then many times not carelessly not like with cliches or biblical platitudes they they really helped uh me um heal and protect that hope quota like yeah i can get i can i can get through this and i can do well on a new norm yeah, I think hope is a is a tricky thing. Um, I and I say this in full caveat that my family did amazing given the numerous things that my family system was going through. But I was kind of at the other end where everybody that at least in my immediate circle, it was more of um, I would say false hope. Like I loved your term of guarding your hope. You know, or I think of the scripture. You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Um, because I remember once in a situation, I believe telling my mom that, you know, one thing that's worse than no hope at times can be false hope because when you have that false hope and then you suffer that disappointment time and time again, that really can hinder somebody's overall, um, what I'll say their acceptance level. Like we, I think sometimes as a culture, again, with kind of that toxic positivity, there comes a time when you have to have the tough conversation of what if this doesn't get better? You know, like Rob, you, the conversations you and I have had um, on occasion regards to the chronic pain, if you just kept banking on, you know, okay, this will go away at some point, eventually when it doesn't and you haven't had that con- uh, kind of that conversation of, okay, what does this mean for me if it doesn't go away? I feel like that can hinder somebody so greatly. And we underestimate the value of having those tough conversations, of helping people accept. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm glad you introduced the concept of false hope because that's critical. I think false mm-hmm. hope I, I think false hope can be more detrimental than potentially the issue itself. You know, but finding meaning and purpose, and like you said, the the toxic positivity and the false hope, the people who care and have the maturity, they're they're gonna help. They're gonna help. I think guard that hope quota so that it doesn't move into that toxic false hope, that unrealistic. You know, God is gonna heal me of this or deliver me from that, and. And I'm not saying he can't or won't. I'm just saying that it, on a broken planet, it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, and I think that, Matt, not to steal your thunder here, but I think that leads us into a good segue about, you know, a good conversation or theology around what is pain and suffering. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, not, an un, that's not an unusual angle for us to reference, um, so, so yes, realizing that bad things do happen to good people. Yep. 
And um, it's probably, well, not probably, it is very normal to experience disease and difficulty. Um, so with that said, let's maybe turn toward the idea of what strategies have been useful, whether it's for, for the two of you or what would we think about when coping with a chronic um, condition. I know one thing that is important to me as I age and deal with health conditions is being able to build a team. Um, realizing that, unfortunately, I'm not an expert on the conditions that I, I manage in my life, but the reality is I have to have that position of self-advocacy to be able to create a plan to treat the conditions that are presenting in my life. Does that make sense to the two of you? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. Like I, like my instinct would be like, I would go to the doctor and they would figure out the problem. They would give me a treatment plan and they would do all the work and I would be fine. Yeah. But the reality is when you go to the doctor, you generally spend about 30 minutes in their office and you're given a prescription for something that you're dealing with and a recommendation you can't solve. I mean, we're mental health providers. Can you imagine meeting a client for 30 minutes and having <laughs> that be the primary way that you're treating the problem? No, I can't. And so we are then left after that 30 minute visit to go home and start to study what is my condition and what do I need to do about it? Yeah. Is my doctor really providing the the information that I need in order to treat this problem. Could you guys speak to that? Has that happened to you? Oh, it has happened to me. Yeah, I think it's, I'm just trying to summarize what I want to say in my head so I don't go on. Um, I mean, I think it's happened to me a bit. Like if you look up cerebral palsy, there's tons of resources for children with CP, but nobody talks about, what it's like into adulthood. Uh, yeah. um, and it's it's been quite an interesting thing to navigate um, because I often, part of owning my own story is there were times where I didn't feel like I was disabled enough to be part of the disability community, but I also wasn't able-bodied enough to be not disabled. Um, and, you know, because as a kid, I couldn't qualify for the Special Olympics because I wasn't cognitively impaired you know, and some other things. And so even, you know, when you don't fit into a certain box, I feel, and this is not a bash on the medical community, what they do is incredibly difficult with the system that I think the United States has set up. But when I go in and I talk about chronic pain and wanting to see if there's anything more, you know, more referencing like massage therapy or even, you know, like uh, doing some EMS treatment or something, knowing that, hey, I might have to do some pain med management when I age a little bit more. That's not a road I want to go down, but they don't really know what to do with me because adults with CP aren't often talked about because it's more seen as a childhood disorder, even though it doesn't go away. It doesn't necessarily decline in time. You know, it's not degenerative from a neurological standpoint, but I often have found myself you know, connecting with physical therapists. You know, I worked with a functional medicine person for a little while that really helped me get on top of, you know, I had no idea that some of my diet could play into some of my spasticity. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think the idea of having a team, whether it's a medical team or even just friends that you feel safe enough, 
you know, to just say, hey, today's a rough day. You know, I think last summer was one of those days, Matt, when you came in and you saw the look on my face. And then our colleague Elizabeth was like, what she doesn't want to tell you is she hurts and all she wants to do is go home and go to bed. But knowing that just laying down isn't going to help anything. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, having that safe place. I, I think the key is the doctor is only one part of the care team. To your Absolutely. point, Ashley, you're building a team and you, I have to take responsibility. For me, I couldn't get them to have a conversation about worst case scenario. It was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to reference it and then move on as if it, if it didn't happen. Well, in each of my cases with the heart, because it's both electrical and plumbing, it's like, oh, I'm now living the worst case scenario and the brain won't go where it hasn't already been to Ashley's point. And so having these conversations is critically important. And I, I have a team. I, I have a team. You guys are on that team. And it's like, okay, you give your team permission to, to share their observations, to, to speak into it, to ask questions that you might not want to answer, um, and then answer those questions, honestly. So I do think the doctor, the pharmacist, the medical the PT, all of those people are a part of it. But for me, I have to take responsibility for building and coordinating and cooperating with that team. Yeah, especially if you're dealing with specialists. Um, Sometimes it can work if you do land back at your primary care physician, they can oftentimes be kind of a coordinator um, and be, Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be ideal. Um, but I really do look to my primary care doctor to be a hub. Yeah. And I bring all my data yep. and then let, inform them. Because remember, doctors are not, they care about us. They just don't care about us. Right. They don't, they don't go home thinking about me. Right. Um, they usually look at my file, you know, several minutes before my appointment. If you're time. lucky. So, so I have to come in prepared to inform my doctor about what my symptoms are or what my condition is and, and be the one leading and asking for help from them. Does that sound reasonable? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. I, I, I don't want to, uh, Let me, how can I say this? Um, I think another important aspect of of these conditions, uh, and Ashley made a point earlier, is attitudinally. Like, this is a quote by Sarah uh, Pattern Boyle that I, uh, my mom was sick growing up with um, heart issues. uh, And, and hers were, hers were connected to rheumatic fever. But I was a teenager sitting in the hospital with one of my mom's um, open heart surgeries and a valve transplant, and I came across this quote, and it says, to suffer is not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing is not to believe in anything worth suffering for. And so for me personally, you know, the scripture talks about identifying with the sufferings of Christ. I think of that as identification. There's, there's power and healing and hope with people who can relate to us. And, and so I don't personally just think it's about the care team and all of that. For me, I try to do a lot of work on the attitudinal side of it. 
Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? That's really it, good. It's like, I'm not the worst off. I'm, I'm one of many people there. And I, I resist aggressively the thought that, oh, because you haven't gone through it, nobody can relate to what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that null and voids uh, potential insight, potential support, uh, information. I don't need, like, I wouldn't wish uh, open heart surgery on anyone. And I don't need them to go through it to have empathy for what what I experience. I think this is a great way to kind of finish this episode is to talk about the person who is living with somebody that's dealing with chronic a chronic condition. And you did reference this early in the podcast, but let's turn our attention to the support system, the family members that are around the individual. And here's what I heard based on what you just shared, Rob. The reality is as a, as a partner or as a bystander or as somebody who cares, I know I can't change the situation. Right. But what, what can they do? What can family members and friends and supporters do when somebody is dealing with a chronic condition? Do you want to take first run at it, Ash, or do you want me to? I would say, oh, there's so many things. Um, I should have talked to my husband if I would have known this was a question. Um, I would say as somebody who lives with somebody with a chronic illness is try to find some understanding for yourself, but also give yourself somebody to go to because it's not easy. You know, um, it, it does make life more, I won't say more difficult. I'll say it does make life different. Um, it just kind of depends what that person is dealing with. But I think everybody needs their own team. And I think, you know, everybody needs somebody they can go to to just say this is hard. You know, if you're a parent of somebody with special needs, I know there's lots of Facebook groups, you know, but I know even, you know, my husband walking through me with me through uh, my own hospitalization back in 2021 due to an autoimmune condition, like that was super hard on him that I didn't even know after the fact, you know, and even now I feel like there's still times where we're dealing with some of the aftermath with that, Um, you know, for everybody to just have somebody that they go to that is separate from their family. You know, that way they don't have to manage emotions or some of the other things that come with family. You know, if it's somebody, if it's a cousin or somebody in the family that you're close to, like, that's fine. But I think one of the biggest ways to make sure that person has support. I'll I'll transpose that into, I agree, the caregiver has to take care of him or herself. Um, If you're not healthy as a first responder, it doesn't make sense to go running into a building and try and drag somebody out of a burning building. Mm -hmm. You, You have to be healthy yourself. I would also add something that I don't think we do well in America, and that is have discussions about death. Like for me, there's a high probability that my heart will kill me. And I don't hide that fact from my family. I invite them in. I, I have conversations. Um, and it's not morbid. It's a reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you, you, the caregiver has to care for themselves. The, um, 
I have to I have to be open and invite my caregivers into the conversation about their concerns, their um, hopes and fears. I have to take responsibility as a care recipient to to allow them that permission. And then I think too, um, they need to to Ashley's point give give us some space. There are days where it's easier. And there are times where it's harder. And sometimes if the pain gets really intense, I have everything I can do just to kind of hold it together. And it really helps when the people around me don't assume what I need, but will ask. And then um, to, to just create that, that margin of space. And if I am being a jerk, uh, my kids are pretty good about telling me you're being a jerk, which I appreciate because that then kind of, you know, is a, 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 a warning shot across the bow of the boat. Um, but those are some of the things that uh, come to my mind. And understand the nature of what your loved one is dealing with. I mean, if you don't know about CP, research it. If you don't know about heart disease, research it. Understand. And then I would say... Um, you know, acceptance is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Moving, moving toward acceptance. Yes. Touching base with acceptance. Not, it's not like a one and done type of thing. No. It usually comes in stages. Yeah. And, and give yourself, be gentle with yourself, be sensitive to yourself and others. As you learn about the condition, as you seek to understand what it means to maybe your partner or your close friend, whoever is dealing with the chronic condition and, um, try to find healthy ways to cope with being overwhelmed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Be a good listener. Be a good listener. Yeah. Uh, not, and, and listen, not just to the person you're caring for, but to yourself as Ashley and you have pointed out, you know, this is a marathon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would even say it's not even a marathon. And I think I don't remember if this was at the conference or not. Um, I used this analogy with a client this morning. You think it's a marathon and then you get out of the water and go, oh crap, here's a bike. Because a lot of this stuff is more than a marathon. It's a triathlon and it tends to throw things at you that you're not expecting. I can stand corrected. I like that metaphor better. Was it at the conference? It doesn't matter. Anyway, but I just, you know, I think that's part of it is we you know, for somebody who is supporting somebody with a chronic illness, you know, is look at your belief system. You know, I think my husband will be okay with me saying this. You know, we had some unique issues in our marriage early on um, because we both had certain, I'll call it cultures to us that, you know, neither one of us was seeking to understand. We were, we were both hedging in of you need to understand, you need to see it this way. Um, but neither one of us were being gracious to the other and being willing to say, you know what, I see your point of view. And so I think as somebody who's supporting, you know, just keeping that in mind. Um, but I also, you know, just understanding that don't assume, and I mean this hopefully in a good way, don't assume that there always is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you're always searching for, okay, you know, now it will come to an end. Now it will come to an end. 
And like, I know for me to find out, you know, I actually first got diagnosed in my early twenties with an autoimmune disorder that kind of knocked me off. Cause I was like, come on, I'm already coping with cerebral palsy, Lord, what else? You know? And then after about 10 years of trying to manage it, you know, um, in my perfectionistic ways, thinking that I have control of it, it then lands me in the hospital, you know, and just kind of keeping in mind that that flexibility of this could be a triathlon, you could get out of the water. And unfortunately, we live, you know, this side of heaven in a broken world, and it might not be the finish line yet. And the finish line might not even be until we get to the other side. I think that's what acceptance does. You articulated yeah. it well. You know, acceptance enables me to adequately assess. This is, it, it, it prevents, it guards against false hope. And, yeah. and the question to me in this kind of conversation is never why, why me, but what? You know, it's important to ask the right question. What do I need to do now? What do I have to do to accept this? What do I, what do my, what do my people around me, my family, my friends need? You know, what is the role of God in this process? What is the role of doctors in this process? And I think that's all brought to you by acceptance. I actually like that strategy a lot, forming or framing good questions and not necessarily demanding an answer. Right. But seeking to understand what the answer could be. Yeah. Because I think that people who live with chronic conditions, they frequently get to, or I like to believe that they, we frequently get to the point where I can live with mystery. Yeah. And to Ashley's point, the light at the end of the tunnel is not a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Right. Well, it's 49 minutes after wow. the hour, and um, as always, a very engaging and delightful conversation. Um, as we come to a conclusion of this conversation, let it continue. Uh, explore, if you're listening, and this conversation has inspired you to further develop thoughts and feelings about this, find somebody to talk to. And um, allow this conversation to develop for yourself. Um, thanks, Dr. Rob. Thank you, Ashley, for joining us today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in person next time so you can <laughs> do harm to me. <laughs> Have a wonderful day for those of you that are listening. Thanks for tuning in today. Be blessed wherever that may lead you. Thanks. All right, that's a wrap.